So providentially, God tells Joseph, go instead to Galilee. The significance of this instruction is huge. Joseph goes to Galilee and settles in Nazareth. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part nine of Christ, the Center of All History. Pastor Paul Twiss is leading us through a study of the Gospel of Matthew, and currently we're in chapter two, verses 19 through 23. In this prologue to his Gospel, Matthew is careful to show his original audience, the Jews, that Jesus' birth was not random, but neither was he from any place of renown. It is likely that most of the Jewish leaders had never even heard of Nazareth. But had they searched their scriptures, they would have known that Christ would grow up having no esteem from mankind. Matthew, himself a Jew, is showing his contemporaries that Christ did not come to earth as a typical military political king. Still, when Jesus gave signs of his deity through his healings and teaching, the crowds that followed would respond by wanting to put him on a throne they had it wrong too. Here's part nine of Christ, the center of all history. One announcement, many proofs, and many causes to worship. That is Matthew's prologue. Two chapters, we're nearly at the end. Matthew's introduction to his gospel is one announcement, namely, Jesus is the Christ. He is the long awaited for King of Israel, that will establish their hopes and bring a blessing to the nations. That's Matthew's claim, his announcement in verse one. Thereafter, many proofs that the claim is valid, that it can be accepted. And each proof is in turn a reason to worship, a genealogy, an announcement of the virgin birth, a description of the wise men coming to worship this child, Herod's efforts to kill the child, the flight to Egypt, and now finally, a strange text that tells us of Joseph and Mary and the baby headed towards Nazareth. Yet another proof in Matthew's argument that Jesus is the Christ, yet another reason for us to worship him. Strange, I say, because... When we look into this text and understand what Matthew is doing, we'll see that he is showing us the lowly, humble, earthly ministry of Christ. He is telling us of things to come, specifically that this child will grow to be of no esteem amongst men. He will tell us that this child will be rejected in his earthly ministry. And even hinting at the reality of his death. How then does that constitute a proof to Matthew's readers that Jesus is the king? It is not the ministry that you would anticipate for an earthly king, far less the long-awaited for Messiah of Israel. The answer is that Matthew is drawing on a group of Old Testament texts that speak of a righteous sufferer. We read one this morning. Texts that look ahead and anticipate exactly this. 
that a righteous individual would come who would be rejected. A point of worship because therein we find the key to our salvation. As we think upon the reality that Jesus did not come and set up a throne immediately. During his first coming, he did not establish a throne and rule over his people. He didn't overturn the Roman government, but rather he appeared as a lowly carpenter who was rejected. As we think upon these truths, what we find is the reality of the gospel. That in them, by them, God has made a payment for our sin. And so it becomes a reason for us to worship this man, Jesus Christ. Now, in order to get into this text and to understand what Matthew is doing, I want to ask of it this morning three questions. I want to ask the the what question, what is Matthew doing? Then ask the why question, why does he do what he does? And thirdly, the how question, namely, how should we respond? What is Matthew doing? Why is he doing it? And how should we respond? Each one opening our eyes further to the truth of Jesus and instructing us to worship him. Beginning with the what. What does Matthew do here in this last paragraph of his prologue before we drop into the earthly ministry of Christ? He tells us that Herod, who sought the child's life, had died. And then there's another dream. I trust you've noticed that in this portion of Matthew's gospel, Herod is a consistent theme. He's the the linking connection between several of these passages. And wonderfully, he's not the point. Ironically, he's not the point. Additionally, I trust that you've noticed there are many dreams in this portion of Matthew's gospel. God is working by revealing through dreams what is to happen, and it points again to his providential care over this child who is the Messiah. Herod has died, and Joseph is told of that in a dream. He's told to return. Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel. And that's a a generic instruction. It doesn't tell Joseph specifically where to go, but to return from Egypt generally to the area of Israel. We then read that Archelaus is reigning over Judea. You have to understand that Bethlehem was no longer a safe place for Joseph and Mary to go. They had come from Bethlehem. They could not now return there. Bethlehem is not that far from Jerusalem. Archelaus is reigning. He's Herod's son. And the history books testify that he was not that different from his father. So where has his father had sought to kill this child, where his father had sought to reign through fear and terror, so also Archelaus. And Joseph understood it would not be wise to return there. In fact, if you study the history, you find that Archelaus' rule was so tyrannical that eventually he was stood down by the Roman government. In his place was appointed a certain Pontius Pilate who would then send Jesus to the cross. Joseph knows not to return to Bethlehem. And so he's told, more specifically, you are to return to Galilee. That is an independent region that does not come under the rule of Archelaus. So providentially, God tells Joseph, go instead to Galilee. The significance of this instruction is huge. 
Joseph goes to Galilee and settles in Nazareth. The reason it's so significant is because now, from now on, Jesus will be known as a Nazarene. He is not known by virtue of the place where he was born, Bethlehem. He is known by virtue of the place where he grew up. So for the rest of his life, Jesus will now be known as a Nazarene because of this redirection from Jerusalem toward Galilee. That's highly significant. Matthew indicates its significance in the last verse of our passage when he says, so that, there's the reason, this is why this happened, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. There's Matthew again drawing from Old Testament scriptures. For the benefit of his Jewish audience, it should not surprise you by this stage that Matthew goes back to the Old Testament so as to give an explanation for what just happened. A few weeks ago, we considered the quotation from Hosea in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, the quotation from Hosea, and I said to you then, that quotation is the hardest use of the Old Testament in all of the New Testament scriptures. It's the hardest one to understand. This one today ranks around about number two. So we're getting really good at this. I promise you it's all downhill from here. The reason it's so difficult is because nowhere in any of the Old Testament does any prophet ever say he should be called a Nazarene. It's not found anywhere in the Old Testament. So what on earth is Matthew doing? (laughs) Has he lost his mind? How can Matthew say, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled? Namely, he would be called a Nazarene. It's not there, Matthew. So what is he saying? There are a number of clues that help us understand or get into this problem. Specifically, notice that Matthew uses the word prophets, plural. Verse 23, so that was spoken, what was spoken by the prophets, plural. He doesn't normally do this, even in those previous occurrences where he brings together certain Old Testament texts, which he does. Even in those occurrences, Matthew still said, the prophet said. Here, he makes mention of prophets, plural. Additionally, notice the small and yet significant word, that. What was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, comma, that. That he would be called a Nazarene. It's really important. Compare that with, just by way of example, verse 15 of chapter 2. This was to fill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Straight into the quotation, and the editors of our English Bibles even help us by putting those quotation marks around it. Look again at chapter 2 and verse 5. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, straight into the quotation. So this is unique in chapter 2, verse 23. This is a unique way within Matthew of quoting or alluding to Old Testament texts. He says prophets, plural, and he says that rather than 
quote directly. The word that is an indicator that Matthew here is summarizing. He doesn't intend for us to understand this verse as a word-for-word verbatim quotation from any particular Old Testament text. Rather, as he says, the prophet said that he is drawing from a collection of teachings and summarizing them. So that's an initial entry into the problem. It seems like what Matthew is doing here is pulling on a number of Old Testament texts and trying to paraphrase or summarize their teaching. So what then is the teaching? What then is the teaching that would be adequately represented by the words, he would be called a Nazarene? There's many different ideas that people suggest here. The most likely one, ironically, is found by pursuing the idea that Nazareth is not mentioned. It is by virtue of its non-mention, its non-existence in the Old Testament, that we start to understand what it means. Consider, when you read your Old Testament, just how much of the theology is grounded in geography. I wonder if you've noticed that as you read through the Old Testament, just about any book, You can't go very far without some place name being mentioned. And sometimes they're they're just every single verse, one place name after another, Jerusalem and Canaan and Shiloh and Judea and Benjamin. And all of these place names, the theology of the Old Testament is grounded in geography. These place names take on eternal significance as they're recorded in God's word. By contrast, Nazareth is not mentioned. There is no theological significance attending to Nazareth, this city in Galilee. The Old Testament authors never found cause to make mention of this town. We see that understanding in John chapter 1 when Philip says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The prevalent understanding was it was a nothing town. One commentator even suggests that for most of Matthew's readers they would not even have heard of Nazareth. They wouldn't have even heard of this place. It was a town of no reputation, no significance, no mention in the Old Testament text. And Matthew says he will be known as a Nazarene. And so what he is doing with this verse is indicating something of his earthly reputation. In so much as Nazareth was of no repute, so also this man will be of no repute. This man will not be commended, exalted, applauded, worshipped by anyone. He will be amongst men nothing. In fact, more than that, he'll be despised and rejected. And so, with all of that said, In what sense does Matthew say he shall be called and that be a fulfillment? And the answer is, as we've mentioned already this morning, there are a cluster of Old Testament texts, particularly in the Psalms and the prophets, that set forth the notion of a righteous sufferer. A number of texts in the Old Testament that Matthew seems to be drawing on when he says he'll be known as a Nazarene of no repute, 
those texts set forth the idea that a man would come who would be righteous and yet despised. He would be righteous and yet despised. And so Matthew is saying those texts find their fulfillment in this man. He's telling us something about his ministry. What is interesting is to consider the fact that this teaching, this expectation, has seemingly been utterly lost amongst the folks of Jesus' day. It's there in the Old Testament. We read this morning Psalm 22. The psalmist says, I'm a worm and not a man. They all despise me. They mock me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count my bones. I am a worm. Isaiah 53 taught so clearly he would be despised and rejected amongst men. He grew up amongst us with no form or majesty that we should behold him. The Old Testament text clearly taught this. And yet what is interesting is by the time you get to Jesus' day, that teaching has seemingly been utterly lost. Consider just the disciples by way of example. They're with Jesus year after year. And Jesus is laboring to teach them who he is. And around about the center point of Matthew's gospel, the confession finally comes. Peter, representing the disciples, says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. We see it. It's a turning point in the gospel. And Jesus says, you got it. And instantly he turns the corner and he says, now I need to tell you what it is to follow this Christ. And his teaching shifts and instantly he gets into the fact of his suffering. I am the Christ and I must go and be rejected and die on a cross. And the disciples can't stand it. May it never be, says Peter. Get behind me, Satan, says Jesus. We don't want this for you, say the disciples. Jesus says it has to be this way. Or think about the, the crowds. The crowds in like manner couldn't accept the notion that he was so earthly, humbly, lowly conducting himself. Any hint of his power, they wanted to respond by putting him on a throne. That's why Jesus says so many times, don't tell anyone that you saw this. Because he knew that the hearts of men would be to exalt the Messiah immediately. Their expectation was so wayward that what they were expecting exclusively, with no anticipation of a suffering Messiah, what they were expecting was that the Messiah would come and immediately set up his throne on behalf of Israel, overthrowing the Roman government. That's what they were looking for in a Messiah, and Jesus was not about to do that. So how did the crowds... How did the disciples, how did seemingly everyone in Jesus' day get it so wrong? How was it that they had lost sense of this expectation of a righteous sufferer and all that they were expecting was a military leader? Now, I want to be very careful because they were affirming at least a truth in part. You see, the Old Testament does speak about a Messiah that would come and rule and reign on behalf of Israel. The Old Testament does speak of that reality to his ministry. But you have to understand just about every single heresy in all of church history begins with the affirmation of one truth 
in isolation from every other truth. You understand that's how heresies work, false teachings, deviations away from the biblical gospel. It always begins with the affirmation of a truth. But it is the affirmation of that truth, unrelated, disconnected from every other truth, taken out of balance, that leads to a false understanding of biblical expectations. So the people had latched on to certain Old Testament teachings that the Messiah would reign to the detriment of other teachings that taught that he would suffer. How did that come about? I would suggest that at least in part, it was because they had lost a sense of their own sin. They'd lost a sense of their need for a suffering Messiah. Consider the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the religious leaders of the day. What was the defining characteristic by which they were known? It was self-righteousness. This, this understanding that they didn't need a savior, at least not a savior for their sin. Their teaching was one that put them forth as those that had fulfilled the law perfectly. Look at us, they would say. And then they just heaped these laws on the people, breaking their back. There was this self-righteousness that pervaded their ministry. And they were leading the people in this way of thinking. They had lost a sense of their utter depravity before our holy God. And so they saw no need for a Messiah that would suffer on their behalf. You see, every single biblical text, to some degree, is intended to function like a mirror. You hold up the biblical text before you, and the truth that it speaks is supposed to pierce your heart with the truth of your condition before God. And as you look at these Old Testament texts that speak of a suffering righteous one, there is an implication that you have to harness in your own mind and in your own heart, namely, I need one like this. If you don't believe in the reality of your own sin, then you don't need those texts. The only texts you need are the the texts that speak of a Messiah who will come and instantly set up a reign on your behalf and all things will be well. That is the trap that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had fallen into and were leading others in that way of thinking. And so by the time that Jesus shows up, there is a complete absence of an expectation that the Messiah would not sit on a throne right now, but would first die for the sake of others. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Paul said earlier, quote, You can't see Jesus as a Savior until you acknowledge your sin. If you don't think you have any sin, you have no need for a Savior. End quote. During Christ's ministry on earth, the influential religious leaders were known by their self-righteousness. Even though Jesus spoke with great wisdom, performed miracles, and confronted them with their hypocrisy, they saw themselves only as the teachers of the law of Moses. They had lost the sense of their own sin. Modern culture has downgraded the concept of sin, but the Bible tells us, quote, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you've never done so, open your heart now to Jesus, to a victorious eternal life, putting your faith in Jesus now so that later you can be with him in glory. 
Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you've benefited by the solid Bible teaching heard each day on this program, would you consider making a financial gift to be part of what God is doing through this outreach ministry? Your support will help us continue to reach thousands of souls with the good news of Jesus. On the homepage at TimelessTruthToday.org, select Donate to make your gift of any size. Tomorrow, we continue in our current series, Christ, the Center of All History, with Part 10. Hope you can join us then. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.